So welcome, Hazel. Thank you very much. Yeah, do you want to have this one? No, okay. So, do you so how long have you been with us in Camden? Or I first came into this church one year and 11 months exactly ago. Wow, good memory. <laughs> well, it was the day after I moved house. <laughs> Indeed it was. Where did you move from? I moved from Scotland. <laughs> that was uh, Scottish, that in was, case anyone... That uh, was a Scottish yippee. Yippee. <laughs> yes, I... Um, Where, I whereabouts in Scotland? I, I lived in central Scotland, in the, in the central belt, in a town called Linlithgow, which is between Edinburgh and Stirling, because nobody here except Kate will know where it is. <laughs> and how long you did know you, where it is. <laughs> how long did you live there for? 29 years. And before that? Oh, before that, I lived in various different places around the country. I moved around quite a bit with my work. Okay. What was your work? I uh, worked as a consultant, organizational psychologist. Ooh. So um, I didn't know consultants needed... Uh... No. Maybe they do. Organizations needed psychologists. What does that mean? They do. They do. Well, uh, my role was to help um, and to work alongside management and staff um, in relation to managing people better with humanity and kindness. Yeah. Well, that word never came in much. Um, And doing all sorts of things like psychometric testing, uh, testing people for suitability for different jobs, um, helping management learn how to do that side of things well. I feel as if I'm only talking to you. I'm talking to everybody, aren't I? Um, and we did. I did a lot of training uh, courses. I worked only. With, I worked with big companies, companies like BP, Shell, uh, the big banks, uh, manufacturing companies, British Aerospace. How did you get into being a organisational consultant psychologist? I thought we were here to talk about Jesus. We are. We're kind of just setting a bit of scene. Uh, well, how did I get there? Well, I... I it's um, great, isn't it, when the, interview, the person you're interviewing comes and says, come on, get on with it. No, uh, he's given me no warning about what he's going to ask me. This is totally unscripted and totally unprepared, so it's from the heart. Right. Well, I got a degree in psychology. Having got a degree in psychology, I discovered there's nothing you can do with it. It equips you to do nothing work-wise. And at that stage, back in the 70s, there were only three avenues to go down. Educational psychology, you needed to be already be a teacher to do that. Clinical psychology, another six years training, didn't think so. Occupational psychology, yes, a two-year master's degree. So that's what I did. Okay. And I loved it. I really loved it. I enjoyed and it the took work. you to Scotland? Yes. So tell us about life. I know that was a significant time. Tell us a bit about life in Scotland. You weren't a follower of Jesus then? No, no, I wasn't. Um, as a teenager, I had been. When I really think back now, I'd been in a good church, which happened to be Coventry Cathedral when I was a teenager, and they were very go-ahead in those days. I moved to London when I left school, hit, a, hit, hit, the, hit the wall with a, a church in London, and from that day on, I turned my back on Jesus, and I was 19, at the, 18 or 19 So from the age of about 18 or 19 onwards, I turned my back on the Lord, turned my back on church, thought there was, I thought it was a lot of nonsense. These are all thoughts that came in, you know, this, this, I was totally, I don't know how you'd describe it really, uh, deceived, I suppose now we know the lingo. And I used to just really 
mock people who were Christians, had no time for them, wouldn't enter any discussions about it, all that sort of thing. That was a total no-no and a negative in my life. I didn't need God. I didn't need Jesus. Anyway, they didn't exist as far as I was concerned. So that was when you were a late teenager, early 20s? That's right, right the way through 20s, 30s, 40s, just into the 50s. Okay. Okay. So what what began, to, you know, that was kind of a hard, that was a, a definite choice, that was something that you, you know, in, in your teenage year. And yes, you yeah, I got helped. distracted. I mean, in those days, I was living in London, it was the swing 60s. I was working, I was having fun, I was a student, all that stuff. I just got distracted and just walked away. I mean, there was nothing dramatic. It just disappeared, really, Edward. Yeah, yeah. And the decades rolled on? Well, yes. <laughs> you did say so yourself, your 20s, 30s, 40s. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, the decades rolled by. So how yes. did, what changed? Well, um, what changed? Oh, what did change? I, uh, where do I start? I had been living in a relationship with somebody for about 10 years. Let's, let me just start at that point in Scotland. And um, it was fine to start with. But as the years rolled by, this particular individual became more and more abusive. And I found myself living in a hideous abuse, psychological abuse mostly. It wasn't physical so much. Abusive relationship. And this individual um, took to the bottle, became an alcoholic, And I don't need to go into details, but all the problems that came with that were just imploding on my life, okay? Life became, on the the exterior, I was a very successful businesswoman. I had my own practice. I was working with my own clients, smartly dressed, all the rest of it, had all the patter. I was good at my job, but home life was an absolute nightmare. That's what happened. So how did that start to change what would you now say bringing Jesus back? Well, into? it was very critical, actually, Edward, because this whole this relationship, which had been my life when it started and was very important to me, I saw falling apart and crumbling. And I didn't know really how to handle it, because you don't when you're in these awful domestic situations. Um, you just don't know. You get trapped. You don't know what to do. And I just put up with it, and I tried to survive the best I could. Um, The relationship split up. He went away. And within two weeks, I had a knock on the door completely unexpectedly, and there was a policeman standing there, and it turned out that this individual had taken his own life. That was the absolute stake in the ground where everything changed. Okay. Mm. It's horrible. I'm, no, it's, uh, I don't need to go into No, no, I don't want you to. Um, I remember when I talked to you when you first came to church, you said there yes. was a neighbor who yes, yes. Had, had a profound influence she on She did. You. I lived in a tiny hamlet outside of Linlithgow, just above the town. There were only a few cottages together. And um, I was suddenly found myself in this awful, awful situation. And I had a lovely neighbor called Nora, and she and her family were churchgoers. They, they went to the Church of Scotland in the town, 
And I used to see them all driving off to church on a Sunday morning and thinking, what are they wasting their Sunday mornings for? You know, I could be having a lie-in and reading the paper, whatever. You know, that was my superficial way of looking at it. But at this time, when I'd had this terrible, earth sh- this terrible shattering thing that happened to me, she was the only person who showed me love and kindness. She was the one who took me into her house at any time of day or night when I was a, 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 a nighty in dressing gown, pajamas, slippers, middle of the night, whatever. She would open her door, bring me in, give me a cup of tea, and just allow me to be who I was. Other people in the town ostracized me because of what had happened and would cross the road and avoid me. But this lovely Christian lady was the one who, who, um, took, who, who gathered me up, who were the arms of Jesus to me. I didn't know that at the time. Yeah, she was, she was thank wonderful. Thank God for Nora. Thank, thank God for Nora. I keep telling her this. She kept saying, oh, stop it. <laughs> mm. yes. And she didn't particularly at that time try to answer any questions she just no, was there to, to absolutely welcome you not she was a plier of cups of tea arms around my shoulders shoulder to cry on and was just there for me she didn't try to she was non-judgmental she was non she didn't try and preach at me i, I, I she, she never even mentioned the fact that she was a christian i just knew this because i'd seen them going to church in the car mm-hmm. yeah so what began to in that awful time, when, when you just described, what, yes. what started to happen? What, what changed your awareness of things? Well, Nora, Nora, this lovely praying lady, uh, on one of these tea, tea quaffing sessions, shall we say, she said to me, Hazel, I think it's time for you now to see and speak with the minister at the church, the Church of Scotland down in the town. And I went, what? No, that's the last thing I want. I don't want to see any minister. Well, now this woman knew me better than I realized because she said to me then, well, I'm very sorry, Hazel. It's too late. I've I've already booked him to come. (laughs) And he'll be here tomorrow at 6.30 p.m., so please be polite to him. I mean... (laughs) Which I'm sure you would appreciate. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so he turns up at 6.30. So Did you turn up? He was coming to my house. Oh, okay, yeah, he yeah. Did house. you open the door? Did I t- <laughs> well, uh, before this, okay. I, my, my head was going around, and I was thinking to myself, oh, Lord, what am I going to do? <laughs> um, this man will be a Church of Scotland minister. He'll be old and gray-haired and a dog collar and a black suit and a black shirt lugubrious expression. These were all thoughts that were going through my head. So I thought, well, I better have a tray of tea ready for this man. Anyway, <laughs> I opened the door and I nearly, I nearly did a double take because standing on my step was a very young, about 30, gorgeous looking, blonde, blue eyed bloke <laughs> with an American accent in a check shirt and chinos and just, you know, can this be the minister? Well, it was. <laughs> he was the young assistant minister. Okay. God knows, God knew how to get to me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, a lovely man. His name was Will Jones. He was from t- Tennessee, and he was over on a year's whatever they do. 
And I looked at him, and I thought, he doesn't look like the tea-drinking type. So quickly, I said to him, you can have a cup of tea, or would you rather have a malt whiskey? Oh, he said, what you got? I said, well, I do have... Do you know, that doesn't happen to me very often. (laughs) I'm I'm speaking on your behalf. I know, just... But it gets better. I, he said, well, what, what have you actually got? Now, those of you who've lived in Scotland know that this is a very important subject, isn't it? I said, well, actually, I've got a rather nice bottle of Lagavulin. Ooh, he said, that's my favorite. <laughs> and so, you know, anyway, we went and sat down. I'm, I, I am, this is serious. But if I can laugh a bit, it stops me crying, actually. Yeah. It might do, it might not. Um... So we sat down in, in my you know, sitting room, wherever, and he just spent the next hour and a half literally listening to me. He never mentioned the G word or the J word once. And I have to say, I was very, very thankful for that because I would, not ha- I would probably have shown him the door if he tried to talk God and Jesus to me at that point. I wasn't ready. I really wasn't ready. But what he did show was compassion, understanding, non-judgmental, prepared to listen. I poured out all the ghastly details, which I'm certainly not telling any of you lot tonight. He got the lot. And then he, we finished up, and I felt a lot better for having spoken to this person, I have to say. He said, right, well, I'll come back in a couple of days and see how you're getting on. And he did. The next time he came, you know, I'd, I'd sort of got now, had time to think, and one of my loves in life is very amateurish, but painting. I like painting, doing landscape painting. And I'd been on a landscape painting week just after this man had died. And, and I'd done a painting while I was there. And it was when I looked at it, it wasn't at all realistic. It was a very angry, hurt. It was all my emotions coming out in this landscape. Um, and I'd... We, we, we got talking about painting, because I suppose you must find this, when you go to see people, sometimes it must be difficult to find things to talk about, you know, especially when you're trying to keep off certain subjects, which he was. So we got talking about painting. He got me to show him this picture, and it was just a simple mountains, small mountains, river, and whatever, nothing special. And he looked at it, and honestly, I think this was a key moment for me, because he just held it studied it, and then he said, I see a cross. And that was the first kind of word connected with God or Jesus. And he said it again, I see a cross in this painting. I said, there's no cross in that painting. Come on, show me. So he showed me, and I said, no, 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 that's not a cross. That's a, that's a sheep trail, and it goes there, and it goes there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Yes, anyway, that's, that's enough of that. The next day, I was, this is where it gets, this is where, this is where the, literally the rubber hit the road, I think you could say, because I was in a pretty awful state, and I decided to go out with my sketchbook and my paints and go to the Trossachs to do some painting and sketching. Now, where, from where I lived, to get to the Trossachs, you drive a few miles up a motorway, and then you turn left. Am I right, Kate? I am right. 
to go straight on would take you up towards Perth and a place called Dunblane and these sort of places. So it is significant because I was driving up the motorway at 70 miles an hour, as you do, thinking about, God, I don't know what I was thinking about, when suddenly, <coughs> excuse me, suddenly I was very aware here, passenger seat, of a presence of God that I didn't even believe in. But I knew, it was like a parallel thing. I, I still didn't, I didn't believe in God, but I knew God was in the car with me, beside me, and there was no arguing with it in my head. I'm still driving along at 70 miles an hour, by the way. And um, I thought, Crumbs, what, you know, what's happening here? It all seemed very strange and very odd. And it was almost, I, I couldn't see anything. I couldn't feel anything other than in here. I knew he was there with me. And I'm coming up to the point where the road would have gone off to the left or gone straight on. In other words, I came to a point of decision making. Was I going to turn left and go and do my painting? Or was I going to go straight on? Oh, no, I haven't told you what he said to me first. I've missed a bit out. As I was driving up towards this, this point of turning, I was, it was almost, this is where it gets difficult to describe because I definitely heard him speak to me. Now, I didn't hear a voice from a microphone coming out at the end of, you know, the corner of my car. I didn't hear a loud voice. It was in here, but it was very, very, very clear. And this, this, entity, this God, said to me very, very, very clearly, drive this car to Dunblane Cathedral. It couldn't have been more precise. And I'm going, oh my, Lord, what, um, what am I doing? What's going on? Second time, drive this car to Dunblane Cathedral. Oh, well, well I've never been to Dunblane. I know it's up the road somewhere. Third time, three times, drive this car to Dunblane Cathedral. And I was just at that point where I should have swooped off to the left, so I kept on going. I kept on going. I'd never been to Dunblane before. It's a little tiny town with a cathedral in it and little, you know, windy streets. Very nice, very pretty little place. I arrived in Dunblane town centre. This was a Friday morning. It was round about 11 o'clock, coffee time-ish. And yet, it was very odd because there didn't seem to be anybody much about. I couldn't, didn't see any people particularly to ask anything. You know, anyway, I found the cathedral, parked the car, got out, and I walked up to the gate, you know, this, what do they call those, lich gates or wicket gate, at the edge of the graveyard place. And on this notice, it said... Welcome to Dunblane Cathedral. Visitors welcome Monday to Thursday. Closed on Friday. And here I am, Friday, standing outside this place, having been told to come there by this voice that I knew was God, although I didn't know God yet, but I knew it was. And then these odd thoughts kept going round in my mind. Well, if I'm expected... They, I don't know who this they I thought I meant, they will have left a door open for me. So I um, 
I wandered around. Of course, nobody had left the door open for me. I couldn't find a sign that said vicarage or manse or anything, so I was told to knock on the door and ask if they'd let me in. Nobody, nothing. So I went and sat in the graveyard on a park bench in the sunshine. End of November, sunshine, Scotland. God works in very mysterious ways sometimes. Um, And I sat there possibly for half an hour, 40 minutes. And all the time I was sitting there, I had this sense of rising up in me. Something momentous is about to happen, but I don't know what it is. And after a while, I saw a man bringing dustbins, you know, wheelie bins up and doing odd jobby talk sort of things. And I thought, oh, he looks like he might be the maintenance man. So he um, went, he, he left these bins and he then went up to the door of the cathedral, got out a big jangly thing of keys, opened the door, went in, locked the door. I thought, right, okay, this is it. Let's go for it. So I went along, and this a huge, huge, huge oak door. It's an old cathedral. And I literally went bang, bang, bang three times with my fist and waited. And the door opened, and there was this rather small chap. I mean, I was a lot taller than him, which made it weird because I was sort of looking down on him. And I literally just... I just said, I have to come in. I didn't say, please, could I come in? Or, I know you're closed. Would it be all right? I simply said, I have to come in. And he looked at me up, looked up at me like this, and he went, I stood back, never said a word, let me in, shut the door, locked it. So here I am, locked inside an empty cathedral. <laughs> Extraordinary, extraordinary. And how well God knew me because in order to get my attention, he had to lock me into this building because this man then disappeared. He'd gone. And I, I am in this place. And afterwards, I've just got, I mean, we all know this is very familiar verses, but I just asked Marilyn to find it for me this evening because I just felt afterwards when I read this, this was what it was all about. Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, seek, knock. (laughs) Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Do you know, and that was literally what happened. So I'm in this cathedral. And I thought, well, (laughs) now what do I do? So I sat down and I picked up a pew Bible. And I started leafing through it. And I hadn't read a Bible since the day I left school, which thankfully they used to, well, I suppose when I, you know, the youth club and all that at the cathedral as well. But, you know, since since I was 18, I hadn't picked up and opened a Bible at all. And then it started, when I say it, this whole process of, some of these songs we were singing tonight just said it so well, of how God just washes it all away. God just comes after you. God just wants you. You are his child. We are his, and he wants us. And I sat in that pew, bawling my eyes out at the top of my voice, snot and tears everywhere. Let's not, you know, be, let's not <laughs> pretend otherwise. And 
just crying out to God everything that I needed to tell him about my life that I was ashamed of, that had gone wrong, about not, you know, all the rest of it. And as I was doing this, I just felt this sense of love and forgiveness washing over me. Now, I'm very wary about all this Christian jargon about washed in the blood of Jesus. You know, what does it actually mean? Because it can be confusing when you're not a Christian. You don't know what they mean and washed in, washed in the spirit. Well, I tell you, it was real. It felt like I was under a waterfall of God just coming down again and again and again. And it was amazing and incredible. And by the time it all sort of calmed down, at that moment, the little man came and said, okay, do you want to go now? It's like God had sent him. I said, yes, thank you very much. That'll do. Let me out, please. And that was, that was the experience, Edward. It was extraordinary. And looking back on that time and then what that, that experience, that moment of encountering God, yes. obviously that changed you. Changed me. It changed me from that day onward. I, came in, I went into that place, as I described before. I came out an hour and a half later or whatever it was, knowing I was a Christian. Because I was saying it to myself, that must mean I'm a Christian. That must mean I need a Bible. That must mean I need to pray. What am I going to do about it? What did Nora say? Oh, she didn't find out for another three days. Because <laughs> I didn't tell her. Because <laughs> I kept it all to myself. It was so precious. I went out and I did buy a Bible and I did try and learn the, I tried to say the Lord's Prayer. It took me all the way from Dunblane to Edinburgh on the motorway to get all the words of the Lord's Prayer out because I'd been taught them at school and at church and all that. And then I spent the next day, Saturday, sitting at home, absolutely stunned. I wasn't prepared to tell anybody. It was far too precious. And that whole day, I just felt the love of God, waves of love, 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 love. I have never felt anything like it since or before or ever, except for that day. And in the afternoon, I got up and I went out to to find the church that this lovely Will Jones had come from, to find out the time of the services. And the next day, I toddled off to the morning service, very formal, very, it's a very formal Church of Scotland-type church, all black suits and black this and little, you know, a bit scary, actually, to, when you're by yourself and you don't quite sure what's happened to you. So I, I crept in and I sat at the back and I saw Nora at the, a bit further up, huge, great big church, this... So she turned around, she, she just gave me a little smile. She'd seen me, she knew I'd come, that was okay. And then Will Jones was preaching, and the sermon he preached could have been written for me in my situation. I mean, you know, it's just extraordinary how God engineers things. He saw me going out, shook my hand as they do at the door when you go out, and within about a month, I had got a whole gang of Christians had come around me, they'd welcomed me into their fellowship. They made sure I went to coffee mornings and prayer meetings and this, that, and the other, and the next thing. And, you know, they just made me join in with everything they were doing. And Will Jones invited me on to the Alpha course in February. So this was all happened in November. By February, I was on the Alpha course and away. You know, it was great. Fantastic. So you, you had a career, but I remember you saying that you're kind of like, if this is my new life, 
Yes. I want to know yes. about it. So tell us what happened then. Well, yes. So <coughs> it, took a, it took a year or two because as baby Christian, I didn't really know much. I didn't even know who Abraham was, to be frank, because, you know, who the heck's Abraham? I know he's in the Bible, but what was it all about? And the more I... Um, the more I got into this, the more I realized that my life had totally transformed. I knew I had to do a crash course in what the Bible was all about, what Christianity was all about, because I was 51 by this time. I thought, I haven't got time to waste, you know. And I started off, I did a one-year course in evangelism, which was run in a local Pentecostal church somewhere nearby, which was brilliant, because that just opened up a whole world of you know, not an informal church as opposed to a very formal church. I realized you didn't have to be like the Church of Scotland all the time. And I learned about evangelism, getting out, talking to people, sharing your faith, all that sort of thing. And then I realized that wasn't enough. And I thought, I, by this time, I was getting a very strong sense that my business was going to wind up. I'd lost my heart for my business by now. It didn't mean the same as it did. It was just earning money. And when my heart went out of the business, I knew I had to transition into something more. And I knew that I, I spent a lot of time in prayer asking God, you know, what do you want for me? I'm in my 50s. I, I, I walk with a limp. I'm not that fit. Um, what do you want for me? He answered that in a very, can I just read the little passage? He answered me one weekend when I was on a retreat in a lovely place in the borders, pick up your ears, Kate, called Hoik. <laughs> I was on this beautiful retreat and um, sitting in the garden saying, God, what do you want for me? What am, I, what am I supposed to be doing? And he gave me this, these verses in Isaiah, and they just mirrored exactly what happened to me um, later on. It's like from Isaiah... I'm glad we did Isaiah, by the way, because we've actually covered this bit. I think David talked on this bit. In Isaiah, somewhere in chapter 58, it says quite specifically, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the, uh, oh no, I didn't, not that bit. And if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Lord will guide you always. He, this was the bit. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. I think I need to just explain. I've jumped ahead a bit. By this time, I had already got to know some Rwandan pastors and been out to Rwanda just after the genocide just to visit pastors that I'd got to know who'd been in Scotland. And I had really been fired up with the thought that I wanted to do mission more than anything. Was this right? Was this what God wanted for me? And this, this verse just spoke to me of Rwanda and the situation it was in at the time. And I kept on praying, and I felt that was confirmed very much. So I thought, if I'm going to do this work, I can't go as a happy amateur. I need to have some training. So I gave up my business, and I went to the International Christian College, which is the Glasgow Bible School, as was, and signed up for a three-year degree course in theology and mission. I did a bit of part-time consulting, because I had to keep the... You know, when the bank balance went down, God was very good. He'd 
tell a client to ring me up and give me some work, which was in Glasgow rather than in France or London or Aberdeen, which wouldn't have been so convenient, really, mm -hmm. would you? <laughs> so you trained for three years? I trained for three years. And where did that, in the promise that God had given and spoken, where did that lead to? It led me, it led me to setting, uh, it led me to graduating. I, finally, I mean, the years have gone by. I was about, I was in my quite late 50s by the time I graduated. And it didn't make sense to apply to a normal mission, or what I call a normal mission organization, um, you know, OM or these sort of things. It just didn't make sense for me. It didn't, that wasn't what God was telling me to do. So I talked it through with people of significance, like my tutor and the principal and my, my pastor at my church. And we, came, we all came to the conclusion together through prayer that what I needed to do was set up my own mission organization as you do when you're 58 and can't walk properly. <laughs> Sounds good. But give God the glory. Hey, why not? <laughs> so what did the agency do? And, and what, so Rwanda was part of that? Yes, it was, it, was, um, it, it was set up as a proper charitable trust with, with you know, uh, trustees and proper constitution, and we were adopted under our church as an official mission organization, and it was called On Eagle's Wings, and that name came from Isaiah 40. You know, rise, mm -hmm. those who blah, 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 rise up on wings like eagles. That's where it came from. And we were set up to, um, to administer to the poor and needy wherever it was needed. You know, um, it was set up to be helpful in situations where people are suffering. I know that sounds ever so vague, but actually it was quite structured in that we only, we worked alongside an indigenous church or Christian organization in each of the countries we operated in. We set it up so that we were helping them to do better what they do and to, to work alongside. So there was Rwanda, then there was India, then Burundi, and those were the three countries that we concentrated on. And it ran um, very successfully for about 10 or 12 years. Yeah, yeah. It was, so you visited those places? I used to go out every year. I went to each of those countries every year. I would be out of the country for six, eight, ten weeks at a time in different places. I would be back in this country then to raise support, to communicate, to talk to churches about the work, to explain what was needed, and to, to gather prayer support and financial support. Yeah, yes. What did you see the Lord do through that? Oh, how give us a few. Give us a few <laughs> snippets. Okay, I saw the Lord. Um, we well, yeah, He used us in extraordinary ways, um, planting churches, setting up schools, um, setting up income-generating projects for widows and orphans, building um, clinic, um, working with people in leprosy village in India teaching people suffering from leprosy how to set up self-care and self-help groups. Um, I remember you told me things. about one lady or one village you went back to and the difference that after a visit where you taught these skills. Oh, yes. The leprosy village, yeah. yes. People in India who have leprosy are just, no one wants to know. They are they are treated appallingly and they're, they're <clears> gathered <throat> together in these, what they call leper colonies, in the most 
awful conditions. They can't grow anything because it's sand and it's not proper soil. They, they, you know, their fingers and toes have disappeared. They can't do things with tools and all the rest of it. But worst of all, they have terrible, terrible lesions, infected arms, feet, hands, eyes, because their nerve endings are dead. They're always injuring themselves. And I have never seen lesions, like the whole length of your arm, absolutely down to the bone practically, And the organization um, that I worked alongside out there, they have doctors on on the staff. And we raised money to buy an ambulance so they could have a mobile clinic. But these doctors would go out to the leprosy villages and they were just bandaging up these wounds. But it wasn't really helping because as soon as they went away and they were walking about in bare feet with bandages on, they just came off again and they they were getting dirty. So... I came back um, to this country after that first visit to the leprosy village and I made contact with the leprosy mission in Scotland and the international director for the leprosy mission worldwide or UK-wide was a professor at the medical school in Aberdeen University and when Sudhir Kumar, the bishop from India, was over we went together to visit this man in Aberdeen University and said, what is the best way we can help these people with leprosy? And he spent a whole afternoon of his very, very valuable time outlining to us exactly how we could help, which basically was to set up, teach the people how to look after themselves so that these wounds would heal and not recur. Sorry, I'm probably talking too long and too much. Carry on. I'll wind up when eating. So you you got this advice. So we got this advice, um, and um, we set up... Collared in a friend of mine called Julie, who'd been at Bible College with me, and she'd done five years in Darfur with the leprosy mission in the, in the refugee camps in Darfur. She'd had a lot of experience with leprosy. So we together went as a team out to India. With a, we'd worked out a training program, how we were going to do this. But the main problem is, of course, people with leprosy have no... these In these villages, most of them have had no education. They're illiterate. They can't read and write. Uh, many, many handicaps. So we had to work out a way to teach them how to care for themselves, but not just to care for themselves, how to teach other people to do it too. And we did it. And it basically involved, to put it very, very simply, was a washing up bowl, plastic washing up bowl, and a jar of um, petroleum jelly per person. But what they did with that was what was crucial, and showing them how to use it which involved soaking and oiling their feet and hands so many times a day and explaining why it was important. But, of course, we didn't have their language. They didn't have our language, so we had to do it through interpreters. And then we had to test them whether they'd actually the learning had taken place, which was actually, you know, it, it took a little ingenuity. Mm-hmm. However, we got these lovely... We got 10 people trained. There were 100 people in the village... And each of those 10 was allocated to, to 10 individuals. They had a group of 10 each. That was their responsibility. And we left them to it for three weeks to go back and teach the people in the village what to do. And we went away and did other things. In the meantime, we'd found a shoemaker who himself had had leprosy, as had his father. So he understood the issues. And we commissioned him to come into the village and measure up all their feet so they could have a pair of leather sandals each, which would protect their feet from the gravel and the stones. 
So that was all going on while in this time where we were waiting and wondering how they were getting on. Anyway, we went back after three weeks and my heart jumped with joy as we turned into this village and we saw the whole village sitting in a great, in the, in the, on the ground or in a circle with their hands and feet soaking in plastic bowls of water, warm water, water wasn't warm, whatever it was, it was water. And they were doing it as a community. Then the doctor set up his, his stall to, to have a look and inspect all their wounds and they all lined up to come and show him. And the healing that had taken place was incredible. Some of them were just completely healed. So that we'd proved to them that what we'd asked them to do was worth doing. So they were motivated to keep doing it. I've since heard, because Sudhir was over here a few weeks ago, and he said, you know what? That program has now been rolled out to other leprosy villages. Those, young, those people that we trained had gone out to other villages and trained other villages. Wonderful. And I was just so happy to hear that. Because sometimes you think, well, we do all this good work, and is it going to last, and is it going to happen? And it, and it did, and it has. Yeah. Such yeah. an inspiring story. It is. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah. And you serving Jesus still, I know you're part of a, a group in the church who knit. Uh, yes. And just yes. tell us briefly how that serves and how it shows the love of yeah, God. Yeah, well, this is something I thought I could do when I came here. I'd started it up in my life. After I broke my hip, that rather got in the way of all this. Um, so it, that, that's what took me out, basically, the hip fracture and all that nonsense. So I had to find something else to do. And I set up in my last church something called the Prayer Shawl Ministry which involved ladies, well, although I'm told the original one, they've got a man in there now doing this. They've got the, the first group have got a man. I don't want to be sexist about this, do I? Um, we make shawls, uh, knee blankets, scarves for people who are sick, in trouble, distressed, uh, maybe caring for somebody uh, under a lot of pressure or bereaved. And we pray as we knit these things, these items, and then we meet once a month um, after church in the afternoon, and we get together and we pray for people that have already received them so that prayer continues. We then discuss um, uh, who needs one now, and we choose the scar, the, the, the thing to go to, to somebody. They are packed up in as a gift, in beautiful gift wrapping and gift bags, and we put in with it prayer of comfort so that even if that person's not a christian it's a non-threatening prayer it's a nice gentle prayer and it goes to their it goes to them their relatives see it their families see it maybe people in the hospital staff see it and it's had a terrific uh, rippling out we've had a lot of reports back of where it's you know it's done we're so grateful quite a good thing really we're really grateful you found us one year, 11 months ago. I haven't finished, Edward. Okay. Excuse me. I have just bought the ticket to go out to India in December. Wonderful. I'm going back. Brilliant. I want to go back and see them. They said, we want to see you, Hazel. Please come back, particularly in the leprosy village. They want to see you. Because I've taken out so fast, I never got a chance to sign off properly. 
so I, I would welcome your prayers Absolutely. for my preparations for that trip. So that's in December? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful. So thank you for having me, as they say. Isn't that inspiring? Thank you for sharing so much. Would a couple of people pray for Hazel and thank the Lord for... You don't have to get down from the stage yet, Platt.